Today's Bible reading is Luke chapter 6, verses 27 to 38. Listen carefully. จงรักศัตรูของท่านจงทําดีแก่ผู้ที่เกลียดชังท่านจงอวยพรคนที่แช่งด่าท่านจงอธิษฐานเพื่อผู้ที่ทําร้ายท่านถ้าผู้ใด
Somebody once showed their appreciation to me by leaving anonymously a, uh, uh, an esky full of freshly chopped lamb on my doorstep. Sheep, sorry, not sheep, lamb, the, the, again. Uh, freshly chopped lamb on my door, uh, sheep on my doorstep. Uh, that's not how I said thank you in uh, Southern California. But probably one of the, one of the more uh, clearly disorienting <laughs> uh, times for me of trying to understand how you express love and appreciation was uh, after I had hitched a ride with, with a friend of mine from church uh, on the way back from Dubbo and we were doing uh, a very friendly act, a kind act, and we were picking up the lawnmower, that this, this ride-on mower that this man had bought. And so as I was hitching a ride with one of my uh, church members, trying to spend some time with them, we were running this errand for another man in town. So as we pulled back into town, we dropped off this, this freshly purchased ride-on mower, uh, unloaded it from the truck, and the man was overjoyed and he was so thankful. Uh, he, he, he came out of the house, he said, ah, oh, thank you so, so much for, for doing this. And then as I was sort of thinking through my head how I was going to, to say, oh, look, no, no, no problem, don't worry about it. Before I knew it, he started to stick his hand out. And what I thought was a handshake was actually a VB coming out. And he cracked a very warm VB and immediately thrust it into my hand. And at this point in time, I was very confused. <laughs> um, for, for a number of different reasons, uh, beer is not particularly my beverage of choice, uh, particularly warm ones. <laughs> But by this time, I had known enough that this was this man's way of saying, I'm grateful to you. He was showing love to me. And so I choked down a few sips <laughs> and dumped the rest out <laughs> when we got home. <laughs> but it's disorienting when you step into a new space, a new realm, and you don't understand how to communicate things like gratitude, like love, like appreciation. That was me and Burke. Jesus is going to try to introduce for us what it is like to love in the kingdom of God, and he's going to define for us, shape for us, a way to love, the way to love. And it raises the question, where does love come from? And more germane to this text, what is the basis for the golden rule that Jesus is going to articulate? In the case of me and Burke, I was trying to understand the mechanisms of giving and receiving love. It was an act of love to pick up this man's lawnmower and deliver it to his house. It was an expression of his love to share one of his precious beers with me. Uh, but this is part of understanding what it means to inhabit a foreign space, to understand the rules, the ethic, if you will, that governs our behavior. And this is some things we're gonna to try to tease out. What is the basis for it? Where does it come from? You've probably heard uh, through you know, a TED talk or so, you know, some work presentation or a sermon somewhere that there's a difference between feelings of love and the choice to love. We're often sort of given this impression that love is a feeling, and, and there can be very good feelings associated with, with love, but we're also reminded that love is a choice, and anyone who's been in a marriage understands this quite clearly. But you don't have to just be in a marriage to understand this. 
Because there's always times when our love and our appreciation for other people is tested. It's put in the crucible, as it were. But Jesus is going to articulate for us uh, what's called often the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And if we don't understand the basis for this, we have absolutely no hope of living this out. So by way of overview, I want to show this morning that in this section of the sermon, Luke is going to record Jesus' teaching on the fundamental ethic that defines and directs community for those who dwell in the kingdom of God. Jesus is going to offer an ethic, a standard, a norm of how we are to treat people. And this ethic will become the kernel or the seed that that defines life in the kingdom of God. But it's not just a definition that Jesus is giving. He's also giving a directive here for all those who would dwell in the kingdom of God. Jesus has been announcing this kingdom But here he teaches us this morning, and this really is the big idea. If you don't hear anything else, please take this away. Jesus teaches us that the essence of love is mercy, not reciprocity. The essence of love is mercy, not reciprocity, because love is grounded in the nature of God. And so we're going to see today that all who live under the reign of God must reflect the love of God. Now, by way of an outline to to understand how we would implement this ethic, Jesus will give uh, a loosely uh, but logically connected series of commands, conditions, illustrations, and promises that will define this love according to God's upside-down kingdom. I love the Bible Project. They do some great work, and they have these videos, and, and their video that just tries to unpack for you the whole gospel of Luke, they, they define this section of Luke's gospel as Jesus' manifesto on the upside-down kingdom of God. We saw a little bit of that last week. But Jesus is, in defining this, this love that fits within this upside-down kingdom, uh, he... he passes it through in a series of commands, conditions, illustrations, and promises. But for us to be able to reflect this God-like love, we first need to understand and embrace four ways in which Jesus redefines love according to God's nature. This is really important. For us to be able to love the way that Jesus calls us to love, we need to embrace the way Jesus redefines love according to the nature of God. And here's the four ways that he does it. He redefines the scope of love. He answers the question, who should be loved? He then redefines the extent of love. How much should they be loved? He redefines the core nature of the principle. Why should we love? And finally, he puts forth the incentive for love. He answers the question, will this kind of love be worth the cost that it takes? So this is what we're going to look at this morning, but by way of context, I hope you understand that in the middle of this sermon, which is, this is the heart of it, Jesus has been addressing a crowd of apostles, of disciples, and potential disciples, all who we've been told have come to hear and to be healed. 
At this juncture in the gospel, Luke narrates Jesus' Galilean ministry as an announcement, an identification that Jesus is the one who will be God's representative, the one who will inaugurate the kingdom of God, who will establish that kingdom, and who will restore the kingdom that God had given to his people. But I want to just note four features for you here about the context. First of all, the audience. Jesus, at this juncture in the sermon, he says, but to you who are listening. Now, this is kind of ironic because he's in the middle of a sermon. <laughs> so theoretically, they should all be listening. But by his statement to those of you who are listening, he teases out this truth that not all who hear are actually listening. And so we can understand that the ethic that Jesus puts forward here is really only for those who hear him as a disciple. For those who, who, who haven't come to sit at the feet of Jesus and embrace his teaching and his understanding, this command is not going to fit. It's not going to work. There's really no hope of implementing it. The second feature of this context is we need to understand the broad economics uh, going on here. You have people from the region of Tyre and Sidon, which is a very wealthy area. Tyre was, was a cosmopolitan, thriving seaport that benefited from the, the, the exchange of goods. Whereas the Galilean area was a little more agrarian or blue collar. And so you have this mixed crowd. And, and really, what you need to understand is when Jesus is speaking to these people and he says things like, if somebody takes your coat, give your shirt, you need to understand they have a coat to be taken. They, they, they have something to lose. They have wealth to protect. Thirdly, something that may be a little bit foreign to us is the society of the Roman Empire operated around a robust system of patronage. Patronage. Uh, you, might, you might go back and think through, um, you know, some, of, some examples from, you know, the 50s, 60s, 70s, you know, the shows about sort of the lodge uh, where, where, you know, the, the boys or the gals would, would, would get together and it sort of had this own mechanism with, within it. And, and if you do this for me, then I'm obligated to do this for you. And the whole society and the structure worked on this system of giving and receiving of benefits. And you were obligated to take your part within this system if you were going to fit within it at all. And finally, of course, we need to remember the immediate context that Jesus has just taken us through of this great reversal. This, the good news, the gospel that Jesus is preaching to the poor is that the kingdom of God is coming and this huge reversal is happening. It's already begun and it's really going to happen. And it's such a reality that Jesus can speak into the midst of it things that make no sense like blessed are those who are poor. Like, blessed are you who, are, who, who mourn. Blessed are you who weep. He, he, this reversal is so certain that he can pronounce a blessing even in the midst of a society that would not receive that as a blessing. So by way of context, this is what we're going to look at as we examine the scope, the extent, the principle, and the incentive behind the love Jesus is teaching. With that, would you pray with me? Father, we come to your word humbly, and we ask that you might impart to us strength and grace that our hearts would be enriched through the work of your Holy Spirit. Or Paul would pray that the church in Ephesus would be given power to understand the height, the depth, the width, and the breadth of your love that surpasses knowledge. We recognize that this is a task that requires strengthening. And so would your spirit make us strong this morning to grasp 
this robust love. We pray this in your name. Amen. Follow with me, Luke 27 and 28. Jesus says, but to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who mistreat you. It's one sentence, and in what commentators have called a staccato-like fashion, Jesus is firing off these terms. Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. What's radical about this is not the idea that we would love people or do good to people or that we would bless people or that we would pray for people. That's not what's radical. What's radical about this ethic that Jesus is putting forth is who we do this to. And so the first thing that Jesus is trying to lay out is who is to be loved, the scope of this command, verses 27, 28. Jesus commands us to love everyone, even our enemies, because in God's kingdom, love is not contingent upon whether we are loved in return. Fundamental. Right off the bat, Jesus overturns the whole system of patronage with this statement, love your enemies. The early church recognized this. I wanna to read to you an excerpt from a letter to Clement of Rome. This is within the first 50 years of the history of the church. Sorry, the first 100 years to be safe, I better just say that. Uh, Jesus, excuse me, uh, the, the author says, for when they hear from us that God says it is no credit to you, notice he calls Jesus God, for when they hear from us that God says it is no credit to you if you love those who love you, but it's a credit to you when you love your enemies and those who hate you, when they, this is the ungodly, hear these things, they marvel at such extraordinary goodness. He says the effect of this teaching on the world was they're just bewildered, they're gobsmacked, like me with a warm VB in my hand, what? <laughs> on the contrary, listen to this, but when they see that we not only do not love those who hate us, but do not even love those who love us, they scornfully laugh at us and the name, the name of Jesus is blasphemed. The early church got this. It stuck out to them. He says, when the world sees us loving our enemies, they look and they say, well, this is mind-blowing. This is unbelievable. But when they look at us and they see us not even loving those who are a part of us, not even loving those who, who, are, who are already blessing us and praying for us and loving us and encouraging us, when they see us not doing that, they curse the name of Christ. As one commentator, James Edwards, would say, he says, the positive command to love, rather than simply to refrain from doing evil, causes believers to examine themselves in deep and searching ways. Jesus doesn't just say, don't retaliate. It's a positive command. Love. It's a lot easier to keep track of what you're not supposed to do than what you are supposed to do. <laughs> Jesus says, love your enemies. Such an examination, he goes on to say, alters more than behavior, it alters character itself. Even in their most righteous behaviors, followers of Jesus know they are forever debtors of grace. You see, the scope of this command is that everyone is to be loved. Everyone. So maybe we should start 
by asking ourselves, who do we not want to love? Who do you think is not deserving of your love? Who is not deserving of your blessing? Who's not worth praying for? Who's not worth helping out? Whoever's coming to your mind right now, Jesus is telling you to love them. Now, mercifully, (laughs) like any good preacher, Jesus illustrates this truth, and so he tries to answer the question of the extent. How, How far do we do this? Sort of like Peter when he was saying to Jesus, how many times should I forgive my brother? <laughs> Jesus sort of gets to the extent. How, how far do we go? How, how much do we love? And here we see Jesus commands us to love without strings attached, i.e. without regard to what we will lose and without expectation of what we could gain. The Roman system built on patronage was built on this whole principle that every relationship was something to be leveraged. Every relationship was something that was going to either enrich you or cost you something. And there was this whole metric of expectation that that you had to fit into, but Jesus is basically saying, take that book and throw it out. Look what he says in 29 to 34. This is Jesus trying to explain the extent. He says, if someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. And I've probably watered it down a little bit. This isn't a slap. This is, if someone has struck you on the jaw, this is someone gave you a good right hook. (laughs) This isn't a little, hey, wake up to yourself. This is someone hit you with a roundhouse to the face. You've been hurt. Jesus says, give them the other side also. In other words, continue to remain vulnerable. Offer yourself again. This has been illustrated poignantly in recent history through people like Martin Luther King Jr. The power of nonviolent protest. Jesus goes on, if someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. The idea is that the outward garment has been taken. If, think about a day like today and it's cold. If someone took your jacket when you walked in the door here, you'd be cold. Jesus says, well, give them your shirt as well. What? I'm going to be even colder. Give to everyone who asks you. Notice the lack of condition placed upon this. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. You've been robbed. Don't go hunting him down. And here from this, the golden rule emerges. Do to others as you would have them do to you. This, This statement of Jesus put in the positive frame sets him apart, again, as one commentator would say, sets him apart in a bit of a different class. There were were ideas percolating around the virtue of love, 
people like Seneca and other Stoic philosophers would, would speak about the value in or the usefulness in loving in such a way, the way that it would demean your opponent, the way that it would be the sweetest form of revenge. But no one is doing what Jesus is doing here, which is leaving it as a simple mandate that we're going to see in a moment is grounded in the character of God. He then describes the extent to which he expects his disciples to exhibit this love. He says, verse 32 to 34, he gives a series of, of rhetorical questions. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? The word credit there is, is from the same family of words of, of the word grace. What grace is that to you? If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you exact re expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. Jesus says, when the good that you do is simply a reaction to the good that you've received, you haven't really done good. You're simply returning the favor. Again, going back to Edwards, he says, conventional morality does good in accordance with the likelihood of receiving commensurate good in return. <laughs> Jesus commands disciples to focus on the good act exclusively regardless of commensurate return. This is hard for me. Might just be the way I'm wired. I was one of those kids growing up who... I'll give, you, I'll give you a pass. I'll, I will be kind and nice to you at first go, but if you cross me, I'll cut you off. I destroyed a bunch of relationships in, in my early high school years because I had no concept for this because I, I, I had lived in the reality that I will only treat people the way they treat me. This idea that I would love somebody just regardless of what they could give to me or what they have done to me made absolutely no sense. Which raises the question of why. And here Jesus gives us the principle. Why, why would anybody actually love this way? Here Jesus commands us to love because we now belong to a loving God. Here we see that the the call to adopt this ethic is not grounded in the eventual payoff for us, but in what's already been established for us. Through knowing God, we, we see that by virtue of God's mercy, we have new patronage, and our future is in heaven. Look what Jesus says. Love your enemies, he, he sort of summarizes here again in 35, love your enemies, do good to them, lend to them without expecting to get anything back, then your reward will be great, the implication is in heaven, and you will be children of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Now, read at first glance, this can sound like Jesus is sort of dangling the carrot, <laughs> 
He's saying, here's what I want you to do. If you do this, I'm going to give this to you. But then he says in verse 36, be merciful just as your father is merciful. The key to all of this is understanding the relationship that these disciples have with God already. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. The, the, the presumption behind this seems to be that because they've already received mercy and been brought into relationship with God, they're therefore enabled to extend that mercy. And a lot of our understanding of, of psychology and, and, and the impact of early childhood years on people, we, we recognize that when people are brought into a home, there's a set of values, a set of norms, a set of customs that go along with being in that house. If, if you were brought into our house, there would be some nice things like you would get prayed for every night. There would be some not nice things maybe, like we would be pretty strict on bedtime. But every house has its norms. Jesus is saying you've been brought into a new house. You've been adopted into the family of God. You now know your Father in heaven and the rule of his house is mercy. And so if you would be rich, if you would be, if you would have great treasure in heaven, if you would be rightly called children of the Father, then you would reflect what your Father does. And so that's the motivation. And here we see the gospel. God shows his love by extending mercy to sinners. If you don't know what the gospel is or you're, you're unclear what it's about, what the good news in all of this is, the good news is that while you were God's enemy, he loved you. While you rebelled and kicked against God, he pursued you. While you treated his name lightly, while you didn't regard or, or honor or revere him, he saw you as precious and worth dying for. When you had presumed upon his goodness and his patience and, and acted in ways that, that were rebellious or wrong and selfish, God acted in grace and generosity and favor and emptied himself for you. This is the good news. As Paul would summarize, he would say, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Amen. Hallelujah. This is who we are. We're not a bunch of people who've worked out how to look good to God and look good to one another. We're a bunch of people who don't know how to be good, who've been brought into the same place where God says, I know you're not good. I know you don't have it all together. I know you're not right, but I have love and forgiveness that covers that, and I will lead you, and I will change you, and I will heal you, and I will restore you, and I will give you a future, and I will use you and redefine your purpose that you might live and walk with me. If you don't understand the gospel, you're not, and I'm not going to be able to actually love in this way. You can see why the enemy so often wants to trick us 
into a performance-driven existence, a performance-driven walk, (laughs) where my standing with God is entirely commensurate with how effectively I practice my quiet time, or how many people I spoke to about Jesus, or fill in the blank. Not that those things aren't good or important, but the whole kernel of the gospel is that God loves us despite who we are because his nature is loving. So we shouldn't be surprised when he asks us who have now been brought into his family and are being remade in his image when he asks us to love without condition. But finally, like a good preacher, Jesus... He teases out the incentive. Why would somebody do this? Why would we go through all of this? In other words, is it worth it? Is it worth it to do this? Here Jesus assures us that the extent to which we reflect the Father's mercy now is the extent that we will enjoy his mercy and more in his kingdom. Listen to Jesus. Do not judge, you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Notice each of these things comes at a cost. When when you and I don't judge, I'm, I'm withholding my opinion. I'm withholding my voice on the matter. When you and I don't condemn, we are withholding the final verdict. We're withholding the right to say what someone's state will be. When you and I forgive, we are withholding the right to exact justice for what's been done to us. All of these things, it's a cost. And when it's put positively, Jesus says, give. Well, You can't give without it costing you something. But look at the the assurance. Do not judge, you will not be judged. When I withhold that judgment from others, God withholds that judgment from me. That's the assurance. When I don't condemn, God withholds condemnation from me. When I, I forgive, God forgives me. Now, I can read like this is some sort of contract. If I do this, then, I, then God will do that. If I do, th- I do this way, he does that way. But I, again, I think that's a subtle trick, and, and here's, here's the proof that this is not what's going on. Because Jesus expands the last command when he says, given, it'll be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be poured into your lap. The picture is the scene at the marketplace when you're trying to get grain or bread, wheat, grain to make bread. And so there's scales and measures that are used, and so you might give whatever the cost is, and and you might pay that price, and well, if I pay this amount, then I'm supposed to get this much grain in return. And so the the picture is of the person who comes with their receptacle to, to receive the grain that they have purchased. But here, the picture is, Jesus says, give, and, and, and what is given back is, is an overabundance. It's just, it's, it's someone just dumping on, 
on you blessing. So the picture is more is given. You, you, you can't outgive God. And we'll hear about this more later. But I think it is important to, to make this clarification. Again, I'm using Edwards here. He says, do not judge is thus not a command to refrain from ethical evaluation or from spiritual discernment. It's not a blanket, it's not a blanket statement that, that, that we never speak truth, but it's a warning against a fault-finding and a censorious spirit that binds rather than liberates others in the faith community. Jesus' ministry was to free people he freed them with the truth, but that truth contained grace as well. And so, if we're going to know this future, a future free of the judgment of God, a future free from condemnation for things that we rightfully done wrong, a future that is filled with forgiveness and abundant grace, this is why we do it, because this is where we're going. And Jesus will unpack for us later in this gospel and other parables that the kind of the, the, the pillar of truth that supports this, which is if you're not practicing this kind of grace, then you really probably haven't really received it. Our ability to reflect it becomes a, a fruit or a litmus test, if you will, of our understanding of whether we received it. At the outset of this uh, section, we were talking about how, as a church, our vision is to see men and women transformed. And we've been going through these different habits of, of faith and, and what people who are transformed, what, they, what are their practices, what are the things they do? And we looked at how you know, they, they take Jesus at his word, they believe him, this is a very internal thing. They embrace what the grace of God and the good news, the gospel, they embrace how that changes their identity and who they are and how they see themselves. Again, a very internal thing. Within the community of believers, they, they will put this grace into action. It'll actually start to change their behaviors. And, and over time and consistency, that looks like modeling this grace for one another. And, that, and, and we get strength from that. We're strengthened in the gospel, strengthening us through that. But here, we're now moving into the public sphere, and this is what Jesus has been teaching, both in his encounters with the Pharisees and the choosing of his disciples last week, even into this week. As a disciple, we cannot help but inhabit the public space. And in inhabiting the public space, we carry a message. Yes, our lives are reoriented publicly so that we serve the gospel, but how do we actually proclaim the gospel? We serve it, but we proclaim it. Here Jesus is saying, you are proclaiming the good news when you love your enemies, when you do good to those who hate you, when you bless those who curse and insult and revile you, and when you pray for those who persecute you. Most of us don't think about that as an evangelism strategy, do we? 
But that is a way we are announcing to the world, hey, there's another way to love. This whole system of reciprocity that you're bound up in where you only get what you give and you, and you have to pay everything back, we're speaking a reality that there is a love that is unconditional. There is a mercy that triumphs over judgment. And when we practice that, the world stands back and says, whoa. We're going to invite the band to come forward as we finish. This is a message about unconditional love. I don't know about you, but my instinctive response to this is fear. I don't know why. My instinctive response to this is fear. I think because in my flesh the temptation is to protect myself. And Jesus is calling for a love that is naked and vulnerable, that is self-emptying and is sacrificial. The measure with which I doubt God's love for me is the measure with which I will compensate by protecting myself, by loving myself, being my own savior, being my own sacrifice. Allow his love to cast out fear for you this morning.